Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Catherine. Uh, thank you for, um, yeah, for sharing your uh, journey and your story with us. And thanks for all who support. I know it's been, it's been a couple months, but uh, thanks to everyone who uh, partnered with and were part of the team that sent, as well as uh, the team that went. Um, before, we, uh, before we continue, I want to um, I- I introduce someone to you. I-, I think this might be the appropriate time to do it. Um, I'm going to ask, what, Josiah, can you come on up? Um, Josiah Cha is a um, is going to be a new ministry intern here at Harvest with us. Uh, he comes from Virginia. Um, we're going to be introduced to him a little bit more fully next week as he uh, shares his uh, journey and his testimony with us. But um, I've, I've known Josiah for, for many, many years uh, since he was in high school. He grew up in the mission field and um, experienced a lot of, uh, just a lot of uh, the work of God and, and crazy stuff, uh, both good and hard, um, a lot of hardship. Um, and he'll share more about that next week. But uh, he started seminary at the Reformed Theological Seminary here in Oviedo, and he's going to be uh, coming on with us. And for the next um, period of time, he's just going to be learning, getting to know you. So introduce yourself to him and uh, give him a big harvest hug and uh, let him know that, hey, I'm praying for you as he discerns kind of uh, what God has for him, whether it be in, in missions or ministry or wherever it might be. So I wanted you to see his face and to let you know that he's coming on board with us as an intern um, to try and, yeah, just, just learn to... Uh, get to know who we are and see how the Lord is going to lead him. So pray for him in that way. Can you give him a round of applause as he uh, say welcome to our church? When I was in, when I was in college, I uh, was probably a couple hours away from my, my home church, the church that I, uh, in which I grew up. So uh, that home church was involved in, in a lot of, uh, uh, I guess, athletic activities and competitions, and there's this one big tournament that happened every year. It was a basketball tournament for youth group students, and so uh, churches would get teams together, and they would play at this one big church uh, called Global Mission Church in, in Virginia, and teams would come from like New York and New Jersey and Maryland and Virginia. It's about 24 teams, high school, uh, mostly high school uh, students, and so this one year when I was in college, uh, our folks asked, hey, you know, DL, can you come in? Can you coach this team, right, this team of players? And so I was really excited to do that. I love basketball, and um, I, uh, I, our team was really good that year. We had a bunch of guys at our church who were really athletic. They played, uh, they played sports in high school, played football and things like that. Um, but since this tournament was always such a big deal, a lot of these churches would get people who uh, never went to their church, but they're really good at basketball, and they would say, oh, yeah, he started coming to our church last week, <laughs> or just so happened that the day of the tournament is the first Sunday that he's there. So they made this rule where they said you had to be coming to your church for at least six months uh, before you can be part of this tournament. And so uh, in these Korean churches, you would have these like African-American people or, or Anglo people or whatever it was, uh, people who had never before been to church, but for six months, they're like, oh yeah, I go to this Korean church. This is a lot of fun. Uh, it was actually funny, um, but I guess it was fun for them. So we had three guys like that who were uh, not church people. Uh, one of them was a guy named Chris. He was a senior at Annandale High School. He played basketball on their, on their varsity team, was really good, about 6'3". And then two brothers, a brother named uh, Corey was the older. He was a, a junior, and Brian was a younger one. He was a freshman. I forget what, what school they went to, but these guys didn't go to church. Um, they knew some of our people, but they were not church kids. They weren't suburban kids like 99% of the rest of our church. They were people who um, just, they came because they liked girls and they came because they liked basketball. That's why they were at church. So they were playing with us. And I remember the first time we, we got together for practice, it's kind of observing the way that our guys would interact with the new guys who came in, Chris and Corey and Brian. And as I was watching, one of the things that I noticed was the way that these two older guys uh, Chris and Corey related to Brian uh, was really mean. It was kind of like, you know, almost like the proverbial locker room banter that they have, just picking on each other. And because Brian was a freshman, uh, they were always ragging on him, making fun of him, even though Brian was really good. Brian was a freshman in high school. He was already six feet tall. He would go on to play football in college at a college in, in Texas. So he was an athlete, uh, and he could shoot the ball. He was a three-point shooter and the best, one of the best ones on our team. But every time he would mess up, do one little thing wrong, or even if he'd do something good, his brother Corey would just ride him. He would say, that looked so ugly, or that was such a bad shot, or I could have made it so much better, or why didn't you do it like this? And he was always talking trash to him. 
And when he would miss a shot in a game, when he wanted him to pass in the ball, he would just ride him and, and make fun of him and tell him, you stink, you're awful. And so the first thing I did was said, hey, you know, kingdom culture is different. And so one, one of the things that I want to do, I got, I got all our, our folks together. I said, hey, listen, um, the way that we talk to each other, that's going to go a long way in us becoming a team, right, and us becoming a unit together. And so I said, the way that we want to talk in one word, I want us to really encourage each other. So I, I said, hey, Corey, you know, when Brian missed that shot in the corner and you just started making fun of him, you look at Brian, at your brother's body language, he doesn't want to shoot the ball anymore, even though he's one of the best shooters on the team. I don't want you to talk to him like that anymore. I want us to build each other up so that he gets confidence so that the next time he shoots, he's not afraid. He's not, he's not afraid to shoot the ball. And so Corey's like, yeah, whatever, coach, whatever, coach. And, and so we got to playing. And so every time we'd get together, we'd say, all right, we're going to encourage each other. We're going to encourage each other. And these three guys were kind of off, and, and that's not the way that, that they talked. In fact, it's not the way that the guys on our team talked either, our, our church guys talked either. But they said, Let, let's at least make an effort. Try and make a short story longer. <laughs> we get to the point. Long story short. Uh, we end up losing in the semifinals to a team called the New York Cabots. They went on to win the championship, and so we didn't feel all that bad about it. But afterwards, I got together, and I was like, hey, you know, you guys did a great job. Uh, too bad we didn't win. That's kind of stinky, but uh, I hope you guys had a good time together. And afterwards, uh, this guy, Corey, said to me, he said, coach, um, wish we would have won. Sorry we let you down. He wasn't, you know, he didn't sound apologetic about it, but, but he said to me, you know, coach, that whole encouraging thing, he said, I, I know what you're trying to do, but Chris, Brian, me, that's not how we talk to each other. It's just not how it is. It's never been that way in our lives. We didn't have a dad. That's not how mom talked to us. We never, we, we never had practice doing that. That's just, that's just not us. And so I know you wanted us to do that, but I just wanted to let you know, man, that's like asking us to speak a foreign language. It's like asking us to speak a foreign language. And when Corey said that to me, it's almost like a part of my heart just kind of sank. And I thought how sad it was that he felt like he was resigned to reality for the rest of his days, that he would be the kind of person who instead of pouring courage into each other, encourage, put courage into other people, that he would be the kind of person that would take courage out of people by the way he talked. And the people that he ran with and the people that he related to would be the kind of people who instead of adding courage into his life were kind of people who were taking courage out of his life. Coach, it's like you're asking us to speak a foreign language. And sometimes when I think about the church in the 21st century, sometimes I feel like the language of encouragement is a foreign language to us as well. That we're really good at talking about a lot of things as it relates to politics maybe or a lot of things as it relates to, to family and sports or a lot of things as it relates to education and, and future and, and money and things like that. But to, to really add value, to add courage into the lives of people, to say, hey, I'm willing to, to take a moment to really pray for you right now. I'm willing to, to, to go the extra mile in order that courage which is not in you right now could be placed into you. Sometimes I feel like that's a foreign language, but I began to think and I began to dream. So we finished two weeks ago this series on three people, and we ended with the relationship of Barnabas and Paul and how Barnabas poured life and poured strength into his friend Paul, I began to think and I began to dream, what would it look like if there were people like that in our church? Begin to ask myself, what if there was a guy like Barnabas? And I, as I talk about Barnabas in different places, a lot of times this is what I say. I say he is the most important person outside of Jesus and Mary who gave birth to Jesus. But outside of those two, I think Barnabas is the most important person in the New Testament who unlocked the, the, the trajectory of a church into what it is now, laid that kind of foundation. Because if the Apostle Paul, many people would say, the most important person in the early church, he wouldn't have been who he was if it was not for Barnabas, who unlocked those dreams within him. I was at a funeral this weekend, and one of the people was quoting somebody as they were talking about uh, the person who had gone on to be with the Lord. And he said, the destiny of a thousand people will never be known to them until your destiny is revealed, until you begin to live out your destiny. That a thousand people's destinies are waiting for you to live in your destiny, in the fulfillment of that. 
And I began to think about Barnabas, one single, solitary, singular life. But he said, God, my life is yours. And God threw that rock onto the, 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 the waters of time. And it caused ripple effects that are continually affecting generation after generation. I thought, what would it look like if Barnabas was in our church? How would your life be different if Barnabas was in your house church? How would your life be different if Barnabas was your Sunday school teacher? How would life be different if Barnabas was one of your friends in your Sunday school class? If Barnabas came out to our youth ministry, how would life be different if he was in our church? And I began to think and began to dream, what would look like, what would happen if sitting in our congregation were people who said, God, let my life go. I'll let my life be a stone that you throw out into the channels, into the waters of time, and I want to see what you can do through my life. And so for the next few weeks, I want to look into the life of Barnabas, who was the epitome of encouragement. In fact, that name Barnabas, the son of encouragement. His life became known as a life of encouragement. What would it look like if we began to have that heart in us? What would our church look like and how many destinies of a thousand people could be unlocked through individual lives who begin to live out their God-given destiny? I want to look at the portrait of a courage pourer as we look into Acts chapter 4. Can you turn to Acts chapter 4? We're going to read verses 32 through 37. After uh, I, I preached on Paul and, and Barnabas and, and about a heart of encouragement two weeks ago at our Alpha service, there was about eight uh, pastors and their wives who were at that service because they were here for a conference uh, in our Korean side, and, and, and one of them came up to me and he said, you know, Pastor, this spirit of encouragement is something that we desperately need in our church. And so with that conviction and with that confidence and with that courage, uh, I read to you the Word of God for the people of God. As all the believers were one in heart and mind, no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. As a result, verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is God's word. This is our introduction the first time we hear the name Barnabas, and, and, and we, actually be, we actually learned that his name wasn't Barnabas at all. It was a nickname, a nickname that kind of stuck. We have people like that. We have a guy named David Kim, and for whatever reason, uh, if you look at him, you'll know his name is Biggie. And so people, <laughs> people who've been in his house church for a long time say, wait, 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 Biggie's not your real name? What's your real name? Oh, it's David. There are people like that. But this guy, his name was Joseph. But he was so defined by the fact that he was a pourer of courage into the lives of people that they just started calling him that. Hey, that guy's a courage pourer. Let's call him Barnabas, the son of encouragement, constantly pouring courage into the lives of other people. So what's not happening here? What's not happening is this is not a, a manifesto for communism or socialism or Marxism. Uh, it's interesting because it is where Karl Marx got his uh, ideology and his understanding of, hey, we should all share everything that we have, no private property. This is where he got that from. But the difference between a socialist ethic and a biblical ethic is that uh, this was not government mandated. It wasn't like, hey, everybody, you, gotta, you cannot own your own property. In fact, people met in homes for worship. So private property was something that was encouraged at the time. But uh, what happened here was this outbreak of grace where it wasn't the government telling you to, but the Spirit of God laying it on our hearts. Let's share with those who are in need. And it wasn't a system of equality where everybody gets the same thing, but it was where someone has need, we rise up to meet those needs. We used to do this as a church in our, at our uh, old facility. We used to have a board where it said, if you need something, write it here. If you have something to give away, write it here. And if the needs match up, then this is how we can be a community that shares, who have everything 
in common. So what's happening here is we're beginning to see the entry point of Barnabas into the story of history. The first time his life gets thrown onto the waters of human history, and we begin to see its ripple effects because Barnabas' act caused other people to follow suit, and it impacted the church. And here began uh, one of the great moments in the history of the church in the face of fierce persecution that was about to break forth in their lives. How do we become a courage poor? How do you become the most important person in your church? How do you become the most, because I, I, will, I will guarantee you that the most important person in your church is probably not who you might think it is. It's people who are standing behind pouring courage into giving dreams to others in order that they might be able to fulfill their destiny. You know, you, when when uh, President Reagan got shot in, in the 80s and he was in the hospital, America went on just fine, but when the garbage workers of New York City went on strike, the city almost shut down. So who you think is the most important person is oftentimes not who you think it is. I want to submit to you that you could be the most important person in countless churches as we hear these words and begin to put them into practice. What's happening? Two thoughts here. How do you become a courage poor? Here's what Barnabas did. One, he focused more on others needs than on his own wants. You know the difference between wants and needs, right? We, I mean, if you're a kid, your parents will make this clear to you. If you're a parent, you'll make it clear to your kids. Our kids say to us all the time, Mommy, uh, I need to go outside and play. And Mommy says, did you do your homework? No, I didn't do my homework. Did you do your Korean school homework? No, I didn't do my Korean school homework. Did you practice your piano? No, I didn't practice my piano. Did you do your chores? No, I didn't do any of that stuff. Then do what you need to do before you do what you want to do. But I need to go outside. You don't need to go outside and play. You want to go outside and play, but you need to do these things first. We say this a lot in our home. Do what you need to do before you do what you want to do. Because in the hierarchy of priorities, needs trump wants. You understand this, right? Oh, Daddy, can I eat ice cream? Uh, you've got to eat your carrots first. Oh, but I really need ice cream. No, you don't. <laughs> you want ice cream, but you need to eat your vegetables. So you go strong like your daddy did, right? So got to make sure you do what you need to do before you do what you want to do. That's easy. That's, we all understand that to be true. But what happens in a communal context? What happens in a church? We're a community here. What's more important? The needs of other people or the wants in my own heart? Uh, you know, in one sense, it shouldn't even be a question. But because we've become so steeped in American culture that says live the American dream, step on other people on the way to the top, looking out for good old number one, then we begin to say, well, my, need, my wants are more important than the needs of other people. So here we are sitting in a, in a seat, and people are coming in late to our worship service, and uh, we've got our, our nice, new, shiny Chanel purse sitting on the chair next to us. Someone walks in. We look at them. They're looking for a seat. They're looking awkward. People are staring at them. Do I want, do I, I really want my, my bag to be here. I don't want to put it on the floor because who knows, there might be like a speck of dirt on the floor. Uh, I want to keep it next to me. I don't want someone invading my private space, but they need a place to sit. What's more important? Well, isn't it? I mean, that, seemed, that should be simple to us, right? Uh, I, I've got my bag on the chair, my nice, wonderful bag, but it should be that, hey, if someone wants to sit there, I should let them sit there. That should be common sense. But a lot of times it's not. A lot of times it's not. Here, if you want to have a, a spirit of encouragement, then you've got to begin to look at the needs of other people and focus more on that than our own wants. I know this is hard, but it makes a, uh, it makes a little bit more sense when you understand what's happening here. It says uh, in verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, came and he sold a field that he owned and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so what's happening here? Get this guy named Joseph. Why does he say it's a Levite from Cyprus? Oh, there's a lot of people named Joseph, and we need a handle to identify which Joseph is it. Yeah, that's kind of it, but there's a lot more to these words, a Levite from Cyprus, than we might initially think. 
What's a Levite? A Levite was a Jewish person born from the line of, of Levi, 12 tribes. So if you're a Jewish person, you come from one of these 12 tribes. If you come from the tribe of Levi, it means that you get the immense, unbelievable, matchless privilege of serving in the temple. That means you get to be the ones leading worship on stage. It means you get to be the one who collect the offerings if they were to do such a thing back then. It means you'd be the one that would flip the PowerPoint in the Jewish temples. It mean that you're the one who get to straighten out the chairs and pass out the bulletins. This is what it meant to be a Levite, and it was a privilege that everybody who was a devout Jew wanted to have. It wasn't something that you sign up to be a Levite. You can't do that. You don't sign up to serve in the temple in those days. If you're a Levite, then you get to do it. Otherwise, you don't. So this is Joseph. He's a Levite, and he gets to do this. The greatest honor, the greatest privilege of a person in the people of Israel. This is the greatest privilege, and that's what he got to do. Except that he didn't. Because he's a Levite from Cyprus. Cyprus was a Mediterranean island, and that's where Joseph was from. In fact, that's probably where he was born, and as such, he was what you'd call a Hellenist. That's a Greek Jew. It's a Jewish person who wasn't born in Israel. So sometime during the invasion of, of Israel, uh, the Israelites had to get bumped out, and they went somewhere else, and so most likely Joseph's family settled on the island of Cyprus, and it was there that he was born. And because he was born in a foreign place, the Jewish people considered him to not be clean, to not be a pure Jew. And so though he was from the line of Levi, he wasn't able to serve as the Levites could. Can you imagine that? I mean, this happens sometimes. I'm an I'm a ethnically Korean, but I was born here in America. When I go to Korea, when I went to the Korea the last time I was there for an extended period of time, uh, people in Korea looked at me like I was a traitor. They called, me, uh, they called me these different names. I don't know if they're bad or good, but I, I don't know what they mean. But basically, they're saying, you're a Korean who went to America, or you're a Korean from America. And uh, they saw me differently. They spoke really slowly to me so that I might be able to understand them. They said that my clothes were not Korean. That's why my brother was loving, loving Korea, but I hated it. After two weeks, I wanted to come back home. It's a small fraction of what Joseph might have been feeling as a Levite from Cyprus. Can you imagine this? Whatever you were born to do, like I was made, by birth, this is what I was made to do. Some of you are amazing at cooking. This is what you were born. Man, I was put on this earth. That's my gift. Others of you are great at singing. Man, this is who I am. I love singing. I, I want to sing for the glory of God. Others of you are really good at talking to people, making people feel welcome. So when they walk in the doors of the church, your mission is I'm going to give them an unforgettable first impression of our church so that they will never forget that the love of God is in that place. That's what you're made to do. Imagine you being made to do that. You go up to the church and say, this is how I want to serve. And they, they look you up and down and say, you know what? You're not quite the part. You don't fit the role well enough. That was Joseph a Levite from Cyprus. But this is what I was made to do. This is my destiny. This is what I was born and put on this earth to do. I'm a Levite. You're a Levite from Cyprus. How would you feel? That one thing, and if, if like I was put on this earth to communicate the riches of God's grace and of his word. If I was not able to do this and, and someone said, no, you can't do it, DL, because you're not Korean enough or you're not American enough or you're not whatever enough, you're not tall enough or short enough, you're not this enough, it would break my heart. And to the community that would say that to me, I would wipe the dust off of my feet and go looking for a community that would accept me. But that's not what Joseph did. He could have gotten bitter. He couldn't have got upset. He could have said, all right, forget you then. Forget you. You don't know what you're missing out on. I'm the most important person in the New Testament, according to D.L. That's who I am. Don't you get it? He didn't say any of that. He couldn't have said it. He didn't say that, though. One thing he had going for him. He owned a field. It says in verse 37, he sold the field he owned and brought the money put it at the apostles' feet. He, as, as Levites, you couldn't own property. You couldn't own land in Israel. That was just, that's just the way it was because God said everyone else gets a portion, but I am the portion of the Levites. I am all that you need. And so if you own land, he owned land on the island of Cyprus. Does anyone own land on a Mediterranean island? <laughs> if you do, you're a baller status. If you're Asian, you are a crazy rich Asian, 
right? That is wild stuff. He owns land on an islet. It's like saying, hey, yeah, I've got about 50 acres. I've got, I've got, I've got property on, I don't know, in Cancun, or I've got, I've got an apartment complex. I've got this major property in Manhattan. You are baller status, if you've got land in Cyprus, and that's what Barnabas has, and so he gets rejected by the church, he gets rejected by the people of God, he's like, but there's one thing I've got, I've got this island, you know what, I'm going to sell it, I'm going to liquidate it, going to get all this money, and I'm going to throw a massive party, and I'm going to show these people what they're missing out on. I'm going to throw this party, there's going to be all kinds of sell He doesn't do that stuff. He gets all that money, and he goes back to the very people who would not let him serve them. And he says, In Christ, I have everything that I need. And I could buy whatever I want. Do you understand with this money? But he looked and he saw that there are people in his church who had needs. And he laid it before the apostles. And he said, I'm giving this to God. Whatever you need to do, whatever, whoever needs this, you give it to them because I've got an extra island. I might as well just sell it. That's what we do, right? I got an extra island. I got a few extra cars, or I got some extra jewelry. I just sell it and give it away. That's what we do, right? That's what Barnabas did. See, I, I, in other words, the, the, the biggest thing about being an encourager is our attitude. Do you feel like you're blessed beyond measure because of what you have in Christ? Or do you feel like, man, look at what she's got. That's a really nice-looking necklace. Or those shoes, holy cow, is that Tori Birch? Does she make shoes? I don't know. Is it? I think one of the greatest obstacles to us being the kind of people who pour courage into others is that we're constantly playing the comparison game with other people. I think if we lived apart from a materialistic culture, I wonder if we'd be a lot more generous with what we have to look after the needs of others rather than to look after the wants that I have. Oh, I know I've got six pairs of shoes that look exactly the same. They're black pumps, but I just need a new one because this new uh, company came out and they're supposed to be so comfortable and, oh my gosh, Kate Hudson wears it and, oh my gosh, uh, Constance Wu wears it and, oh my gosh, it's like all the rage these days. And yeah, I've got six more pairs, but I need it anyway. Or I've got 85 pairs of basketball shoes, but this new one came out and, oh my goodness, it's Michael Jordan or it's LeBron James or it's Steph, whoever it is. And so we're longing to have it because we're constantly playing this comparison game. And comparing ourselves with the lives of other people will never lead us to contentment in our own hearts. I think some of us could be the most amazing courage pourers into the lives of other people. But the one thing keeping us from doing that is the vice grip of materialism in our hearts. The affluenza that causes us to have this illness in us that says, I need more and better and bigger things. You can hate me if you will, but I'm trying, to, I'm trying to help us here. Because we're constantly looking at other people's condos and other people's cash and other people's clothes and other people's cars and other people's whatever it is and saying, if only I had what they had, I need to have that. Why do you need it? When there are legitimate needs in the lives of people that we see. Again, I'm not saying, maybe this isn't for everybody here, but this is for everybody who feels like, you know what, I want to be someone who lives my life in such a way that I give courage to other people. Because I realize it in my own, what keeps me from being content in Jesus? I'll tell you what it is. I've been, I've been away from social media for a few months now, not a hard fast from social media, but I've been away for a while because I realized this insidious thing began to happen when I looked at the lives of other people that I saw. In their filtered version of their lives, I look at the beautiful things that they're doing, the food that they're eating, the places they're going, the churches they're leading, the families that they're doing, the outings that they do, the places. And I began to think, man, their life is pretty great. But here's a tricky thing, and here's a, here's a heinous part of it. Over the summer, during my sabbatical, I spent time with a lot of these people. I said, man, church looks like it's going great. Your family looks like they're doing awesome. Looks like your marriage is great. You guys are going out. And they're like, nothing could be further from reality. 
The reason I stopped going on social media was because I realized it was not fair to myself to compare my real, raw, broken, honest life with the idealized, perfected versions of the lives that other people are living because that robs me of the contentment that I could find in Christ alone. I said, God, I don't want to live this way because the comparison game is killing me from finding all that I need in you. How about in your life? Can I ask you a question? Someone were to come to you and a rich relative from somewhere comes. They call you up. You don't even know them. They used to be friends with your dad or your grandpa or something like that. And they're, oh, yeah, I heard you were in, in, in Orlando. They said, I want to just meet up with you for a meal. And, and they take you to a meal. And at the end of the meal, they said, hey, any friend of your dad's, your grandpa's, your mom, whoever it is, is a friend of mine. And a son of theirs is a son of mine. And daughter of your, theirs is a daughter of mine. And they give you this envelope. And it's got this wad of cash in there. 20, 30, 40,000, million, trillion, whatever it is, you name it, figure. Or you get this tax return that you thought you were owing taxes and you get tax return back and it blows your mind and it's no IRS mistake because <laughs> some people in our church did your taxes for you and you realize it's as legit. You got this windfall. Is your first thought about, oh my gosh, I've been dying to get that new fill in the blank. Or does your first thought go to, man, you know how many missionaries I could support with this? You know, I could send someone to school with this. There's someone in our, in our house church, in our church, who has a need. You know what I could do with this to bless their lives? I, I, I love uh, Rick Warren, who wrote The Purpose Driven Life. I don't agree with everything that he says, but I love the way that he seeks to live his life. After writing The Purpose Driven Life, um, obviously it became a, a bestseller, one of the best-selling books of all time. For the past uh, at least 10 years, he stopped taking a salary from his church. He's a volunteer pastor at his church because the royalties of The Purpose Driven Life are covering all of that, that he needs. You think, well, with that, you should give your 10%. He doesn't give 10%. He lives off of a reverse tithe. He gives away 90%, and he lives on 10%. He said, I have everything that I need. All that I need, I've got. He's been driving the same car, a Ford, for 12 years. Lived in the same house for 22 years. He said, I bought my watch at Walmart. And I don't own a bone, boat, a jet, or whatever it is. Completely satisfied with what he has in Christ. If you think about that. God doesn't raise our income so that we would live a lavish way. Doesn't raise our income to raise our standard of living. Raises our income to raise our standard of giving. When we become more focused on the needs of other people, we can begin to pour courage into others instead of longing for that newest and best and brightest of these things, even if we got it on sale. In a community of faith, we have to focus more on the needs of other people. And you begin to do that, man. There's no limits to the kind of pour courage that you can pour into the lives of other people. It's the first thing. Second thing, the last thing. Second thing is that he knew that in God's hands, everything can become an instrument to pour courage into other people. Everything can. So he takes this land, sells the field, brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because when we're introduced to the person of Joseph, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, in, in wisdom, Luke could have written whatever he wanted to write. But he doesn't say he was called the son of encouragement and he spoke to people and their lives were changed. He was called the son of encouragement because he prayed a lot for them and their lives were changed. He was called the son of encouragement because he was always doing this and that. The calling card statement introducing Barnabas' life was that here was a man who gave everything away. And that's what made him an encouragement, pour, a courage pourer into the lives of other people. 
you begin to realize, man, with what God has blessed me with, if I begin to open my hands, I begin to open hearts, and courage gets poured into their lives. You have no idea, man. Maybe some of you can, can, can identify places in your life where you just felt like, man, when they began opening up their hands generously to me, you know what that did in my heart? I, countless times I've been a recipient of this kind of grace in times where I needed it the most. The time where I was going through some really hard moments in seminary where the stress level was high and it was affecting my health, I was, I was bleeding, I had all kinds of gastrointestinal issues, had to get colonoscopy, was just all of these things were happening. I felt like at the age of like 28, my body was falling apart. And as medical bills were mounting and all of these things were happening, I was just, it was, at, it was just a, a hard, hard time. And I don't know that anyone really knew about it, but during that season, this family came alongside of me and they said, hey, you know what, DL, we really believe in the call that God has in your life. And we want to let you know that we believe in what God's doing. And so they said every month until you finish school, uh, we, want to, we want to put our money where our mouth is and say we believe in you, believe in the call of God in your life. And I just remember being like, just like, it was like stupefied. Just, I, I felt like this like paralysis of, of, of thanksgiving and I didn't know what to do. It was really awkward. It was really weird. I, I think I started crying, and I gave them a hug, and it was just awkward. It was really weird. But that was my way of saying, yeah, you know what? This is like liquid courage being poured into my heart. Because when we open up our hands, look to the needs of other people, this is what God can do. One of our uh, sisters, every year we send out folks to go to missions, as, as Catherine came and shared about. And I always ask people, I say, listen, uh, I don't want you to pay for your mission trip. I want you to go and ask people to partner with you because we need people to be praying for us. And I want to give people the opportunity to pour courage and to pour strength and to partner with and to go with you in the mission of God. So don't say, oh, I'm not going to send out any my parents can pay for. I'm not going to send anything out because I can pay. I know you can do that. I know your parents can do that. But I'm asking you to do this to give other people the opportunity to get involved in the mission of God. And so this one sister, she came back from a mission trip. And, and every, every time she's gone, she has been like the number one uh, person in terms of raising support. So much support that so many other people uh, who are going to missions are able to receive from the overflow of, of of her, uh, of her uh, support. And so I asked her what it was like. How does that give you courage? And she said, you know what? My mission's testimony begins long before I ever set foot in another country on foreign soil. It begins with that first message that comes in. says, I'm praying for you, and I'm going to give my money to show that I'm, paying, I'm praying for you. And she was saying, man, every time that comes in, it's like God is pouring strength into me saying, you can do it. You can do it. You're not going alone. She said, my testimony is full before I ever land and get out of that airplane. That's what you do when you give of what you have to meet the needs of other people. Another brother, since the time he was I'm gonna, I might get these numbers mixed up, but from the time he was 13 years old, has been on 12 missions or outreach trips. It may have been 12 and 13 or 13 and 12, whatever it is. But he said every time he's gone, he has never had to himself or his parents ever pay a dime out of pocket because every one of these 12 or 13 times he's gone, you, the church, have risen and other friends have risen up and said, we're going to send him on that mission trip. And he said during those mission trips, he was going and he was going and somewhere along the way, God began to open his eyes to see a vision, to see a dream of what these people need. And it worked in him in such a way that he felt a calling of God to go into the medical field so that he could take the gospel to the nations in both word and in deed. And he feels like, man, without the encouragement of people who said, we're behind you, we're going to go with you, that he, his destiny would not have been opened up. If it, had, if it had not been for many of you opening up your hands 
in order to unlock his destiny. In a year, one year, he did this project where he said, we see people running all around this country without shoes on, and his heart broke for that. So he said, can I ask you to do something? He said, every time you buy a pair of shoes, can you buy another pair of shoes to send to these people in this distant land? And in one year's time, 110 pairs of shoes were given so that children in a, in a developing nation could have shoes. That pouring courage through him into the lives of people in a forgotten land who begin to realize, man, there are people who care about us in the love of Christ and in the name of Jesus. We have a, a sister in, in Asia now, and she needed to raise about, I forget how much it was, $3,000 or $3,500 a month in, in monthly support. And uh, every time someone else pledged to support her, she would send me a text and she would say, uh, hey, DL, update. And it would, someone said they would partner with me $100 a month. This one person from Harvest said they're going to give me $50 a month. Uh, but the ones that she would get most excited and multiple exclamation points after were when youth students of ours, such and such said that they would promise to give me $5 a month. Such and such said $25 a month babysitting. Such and such going to sell lemonade so that I can have $10 a month. Praise God with exclamation points that filled up the screen. It didn't matter the amount. It's the fact that they gave what they had to God and said, here, God, you do it. You pour courage into my old Sunday school teacher. You pour courage into her life so that she can go and tell the nations about Jesus so that the destinies of thousands of people could be unlocked because we're pouring courage into her so that her destiny could be unleashed. We have a high school student who sits in the back and, and very unassuming, um, may not have uh, a whole bunch of things. Maybe, I don't know what she has or does not have, but one thing that she has is she can write calligraphy. And so a few months back, we said, hey, she's made some calligraphy. If you want it, come and support it. And through that, she raised enough money to give 31 children in Africa clean water. 31 people whose lives have been extended who don't have to drink from cholera-infested waters anymore because one person said, I've got, I don't have much, God, but what I have, I give to you. And this can do a whole lot more for you and your kingdom than it can do for me and my own namesake. Whatever you give to God, you understand, whatever you have, God can do with that far more than you can do with it. He can do far more. Do you understand? There's so much more than buying a new t-shirt and jeans. So much more that could impact eternity. And thousands of people's destinies are waiting for you to unlock yours by becoming a courage pourer into the lives of other people. You understand there's no limits to what God can do. What would happen in our church if we began to realize, God, I don't have much. There's a, a family in our church who recently, one of their relatives was, was going through a hard time. And so we prayed about it together. A few of us prayed about it together. And I said, Elijah, there's a, uh, there's a family that, that daddy and mommy know. They're going through hard times and they're having a hard time eating. Do you want to give some of your money to help them eat? Elijah said, Daddy, I have $50. I know because that came from mommy and daddy. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Daddy, I'll give, what if I give $10? I'll give $10. Elijah, $10 is a lot. That's like you only have $40 left. He said, but daddy, that person is hungry. I felt bad. I said, Daddy, will you give five? Daddy will match your $5 so that you have a little bit more money. But whatever it is, smallest amount, Elise, do you want to give your money? I don't have money. Okay, Manny, do you want to give money? <laughs> well, Manny is a little bit more materialistic, so she said, I'll give what Elijah gave. I'll give $10. She's got more money. But still, the point is, whatever that we have, whatever that we have, can go a lot further in the hands of God than it can in ours. Man, what would that look like? I dream of what that would look like. We just began pouring life into each other. Oh, my gosh. Courage pouring church. Unlocking the destiny. One simple stone thrown out. Like for, for Barnabas, it was, I've got, I've got a field. I've got a field. I'll give it, I'll give it to you. For a little boy in, in, in Galilee, it was 
It's a tiny little snack, a Lunchable pack. It wasn't even lunch. Sardines and, and a little bit of fish um, and a little bit of bread. But there's 10,000 people, 5,000 men, maybe some women and children added in, at least 5,000 people, maybe 10,000. What are you, thousands of people, you got a little snack, what are you going to do? Right? Who in their right mind says, hey, Jesus, here. <laughs> I don't know what he was, maybe he thought, Jesus, at least you can eat, or maybe someone can eat, or I can, I don't know what he was thinking. But that day, for a crowd of thousands of people, at least for the disciples, they saw in their lives, holy cow, if I follow this man, Jesus, then I will never I will never, I will never lack for anything that I need. And this boy, Jesus, my snack, not much in my hands, but in your hands, maybe it could change the world. He will take anything that you have, your brokenness, your past, your mistakes, your failures, all of that stuff, he'll take it. Because in God's hands, it's infinitely greater. Think back with me. To these Roman soldiers, what did they have? They didn't have much to put in the hands of our God, but they had these nine-inch nails. In their hands, in the hands of a carpenter, maybe it can make a, a chair, a table, something, but nailed in the hands of our God. Brought salvation to the whole world, to anyone who would believe in him. The destiny of thousands were waiting for Jesus to fulfill his destiny. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to look out for the needs of other people above his own ones and to give his life as a ransom for many. Redemption came to the world because Jesus said, all of it, all of my life, every ounce of blood that I have, I give everything to the point when he was speared, water poured out because there was no blood left. He gave everything that he had in order that you and I, who are sinful by birth, could find our destiny as sons and daughters, because here's our reality. Jesus Christ, John 1, came into our world. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And yet to all who received him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's your destiny as a child of God. And you begin to resemble the generous open hand of the Father. We begin to walk like our older brother Jesus who opened his hands and gave everything because open hands always open up hearts. And when hearts are opened, our lives, the little we have, can pour courage into them. What if we became that kind of a community? What if the destinies of thousands were impacted because we begin to live in our destiny? That's our calling. Let's be a community of courage pourers and watch it change the world. Let's pray. Let's take a moment to pray, to give to the Lord God the things that we have. Let's give to God what we have. Maybe for some of you, some of us, we need to repent of a greedy heart a materialistic heart, a heart that is constantly comparing our lives with the lives of other people. Okay, we have to learn to admire people's stuff without feeling the need to acquire their stuff, to be okay, and to be content with what we have. Let's ask the Lord if we need to confess and ask Him to forgive, to cleanse. Let's do that. Maybe some of you, God has already been placing in your heart. It's been kind of brewing up, and, and this sermon is kind of another voice. Say, hey, let's, let's open our hands. See, what you think you own is really just on loan from God. You didn't have it when you were born. You're not going to have it when you leave. Just on loan. God gave you the ability to make that money. He gave you the brains to work. He gave you the connections to get that job. He gave you all those things. What we think we own is really on loan from God. And it's best, best used to impact eternity. People are eternal. We open our hands to give. I'm not saying we shouldn't live 
with our ones. I am saying, let's challenge ourselves to think about others before ourselves and then to say, even so, even after that, then to say, okay, I've given freely to think of others first. Let's pray together for a few moments. Pray for our church. Lord, make us into a community of courage pours. Let the world see how life could be different. We open our hands in generous encouragement to others. Let's pray for a minute. I'll pray for us and we'll continue to worship the Lord together. Father in heaven, I thank you because I know that our church is one of the most generous that I've seen. We really are. And I don't look at who gives how much, but I know that as a church, we're built on the back of sacrifice of many people who give generously above and beyond your tithes that are rightfully yours because they want to see the kingdom of God go forth in us. But Lord, we're asking that it wouldn't just be the 10, 15, 20% that we recognize to be yours, but that we'd recognize that all of it is yours. It's all yours. And when you directed where you wanted to go, you could do far more. And then we never lose when we give. You always find ways of pouring back into our lives. Let there be testimonies that arise. Let there be destinies that are unlocked. Let there be courage that is poured into countless lives inside our church and outside of our church because of the graciousness of our people. Thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name.